Welcome to the Leading Past Limits podcast. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven professionals to inspire and expand your growth as a servant leader. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago. Join us in this episode as we learn from the experiences of Paul Lockhart, a former Air Force test pilot and astronaut. Share in his journey and growth as an astronaut. Hear about the successes and the tragedies of NASA spaceflight and the future of space exploration. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Paul Lockhart. He is an aerospace engineer and served as an F-16 test pilot, NASA astronaut, and a veteran of two space shuttle missions over the course of his career he logged over 5,000 hours in more than 30 different aircraft and spent almost one month in space during two separate missions. He's currently engaged in technology development for Army Special Operations through his wife's company and is currently writing a book to encourage young people to build character and strive for greatness. Paul, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Kumar. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. So let's begin with, you know, what motivated you to become an astronaut? Oh, that story goes back a ways, doesn't it? It goes back to uh, to the 1960s when the first astronauts were flying. And of course, for the young folks that are listening, they'll find this uh, probably ancient, but there were only three television stations. And anytime there was a space flight, those channels carried the, the missions. And so as a young boy growing up in West Texas, uh, that 15 minutes of, of the launch and the ascent, surrounded by all of the, the, you know, the television interviews and the whole... Uh, I guess, uh, the circumstance of all of the viewers out watching the launches and so forth, that was just absolutely captivating. It, it had everything that a young boy would want. It had the adventure part. It had the, a little bit of the danger, the little suspense. It had guys wearing really neat uh, flight suits and things of this nature. And so when I was a young boy growing out, like I said, out in West Texas, it was either be a cowboy or an astronaut. And so I, I chose to be the astronaut first. So, you know, it's interesting as you describe all that. I remember when I was a small kid, I would sit in my my I had a little a chair that I could rock back in my room and I'd put on a motorcycle helmet and I'd stick a ruler in the between the cushion and the armchair and just pretend I was flying a spacecraft. <laughs> but I, you know, when I learned just how competitive it is to become an astronaut, I have to say I was kind of discouraged. I mean, what what are the odds of actually being successfully selected? Uh, you know, when you go through the process? Well, you're right, Kumar. It's it's a very small select group that uh, make it to uh, train as an astronaut and even less that fly. When I was selected in 1996, there were 10,000 pilots that applied and there were 10 that were picked up. And I think it's even broader now uh, with, uh, you know, the entire interest in space that's been generated by our commercial space flight programs like SpaceX and Blue Origins and stuff. So it's even more difficult now. But, you know, I think NASA uh, really does an excellent job of finding the people that uh, will serve our nation's space program well. And probably the, the character trait that brings these people to NASA's attention is the perseverance and the patience, right? It's a long road to get there. And so you have to really want it. Yeah. As, as I recall, when I was kind of uh, reading about your career, I, I, was it like 13 years from the time you were commissioned to actually, 
or maybe more than that. What, what, how, how many years before you actually were selected by NASA? Well, I was commissioned in 1981 and picked up by NASA in 1996, uh, 15 okay. years. And uh, I always like to, when I talk to uh, I, you know, young adults and so forth, I say, and guess what? On my first attempt to NASA, I was not selected, right? So right. Uh, it was a test. And I, I think NASA does that many times because they really want to see whether you're um, really interested and willing to go the, the final mile to be picked up by an astronaut. So, um, you know, so I did what I had to do after that first denial. And I, I was very fortunate to be picked up, as I said, in group 16, the 16th group of astronauts in 1996. So what did you have to do? How did you cope with that setback? Now, that's well, that's one of the first lessons that I like to tell my my two young daughters about life. So uh, it's not about how things come to you easy. It's what happens when you don't get what you want. And it's something that is so important to you that you're willing to, to do whatever it takes. So. Uh, some short amount of time after I got the rejection letter, I got in my car, made a call uh, to the chief of the selection office at NASA. And uh, he says, well, you know, if you want, maybe you can drive down here and we can talk. And I said, I'll be there tomorrow. So I, hmm. I drove through the night, made it there the next morning in a suit and tie. And we sat down and went through my records. And he said, you know, you're awfully close. There's just a little bit more you need. Uh, you need to become an instructor pilot. And I said, well, I'm already one now. So uh, that kind of set me up and on the next selection board, not about a year later, I was picked up in that, as I said, group 16. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, you, you mentioned perseverance, uh, tenacity, you know, what other qualities, uh, are they looking for when they're, when they're looking to select, uh, astronauts? So the first set of astronauts, of course, came from the military and they were all test pilots. And that's because space flight was and is still very difficult. Uh, but back then, of course, uh, we were at the at the beginning of basically the whole use of rockets and missiles to get uh, not only people, but payloads into space. And so you needed people that could handle uh, difficult situations in a calm manner. And those people that could assess the situation, maintain situational control, much like uh, we all learned uh, in our various disciplines, whether you come uh, as you did from West Point and so forth, um, but then could make the right decisions. And then as the program matured and they went from flying a single astronaut in a single rocket to where you had two people in the Gemini program and then three people in the Apollo program, that one, of course, going to the moon, other factors became involved. You needed to have the ability to learn many different types of disciplines and systems. So navigation in space, then you had to learn rendezvous. So you had to understand those concepts and you had to bring those uh, with you to the game. Uh, and then it became important that you could work together as a team. If you're in a small spacecraft for a small amount of time, there are many chances that things you could do uh, should you not be able to come together and and uh, find cohesion at a group could splinter the could splinter the team. And so NASA really looks for people that are very flexible and adaptable. Mm. So those are those are most of the qualities. Nowadays, I would say as as space flight, even though it's still very difficult and, and I think risky, uh, as it gets to be more automated and things of this nature, I think the the ability to learn 
significant amounts of technical material still important, but as we start planning for the long duration space missions, that emotional aspect is going to be just as important. You know, can I work with the team for the amount of months it takes to go to the moon or for the Mars missions that could be upwards of two years to get there, some time on the on Mars and then, you know, two years travel home. That requires some unique skills to work with a small group of people in a small enclosed space for a long period of time. And I've got to believe that, I mean, trust has just got to be central uh, you know, when you're, when you're risking so much in that kind of an environment, um, how, how do you build trust? How does the program, how, how does your training, how, how do you reinforce trust among a crew? So NASA's very good at that. I think the trust isn't what they're driving towards. They're really driving towards competency and yeah. that competency when I flew the space shuttle was the ability to, um, make sure that, the ascent port part of the mission, eight and a half minutes to go from zero velocity to orbital speed, and then the return, the 40 minutes from orbital velocity to landing on a runway, that we could handle any situation within the limits of what could be expected. And could we do so to an ability that would maximize uh, the crew's chance of survival or uh, bringing, the, bringing the vehicle back home? But what you found in all of the exercises that NASA presented to us in the in the motion-based simulators. These were, these were the ones that would rotate and move and actually simulate ascent through the fixed-based simulations where you would do on-orbit types of activities. So you would practice this. Then through the neutral buoyancy chamber where you would practice your spacewalks and then the astronaut who helped support them from inside the space shuttle or the space station would uh, help them execute those spacewalks. What you found out is that trust was built when you yourself and then the collective membership came every day to the job having prepared themselves, having known exactly what was required of them, and then knew not only their jobs, but were willing to learn some of the other requirements as well. And so you really learned really quickly, um, you know, who you could trust in each situation. And the best teams, of course, had just the highest level of trust across all the team members. Yeah. You you mentioned a couple of things that just struck You talked about managing the ascent. Correct. And you talked about, uh, not your words, but what struck me was kind of bringing a calming influence to stressful situations, right? And being able to manage and operate within that. What, I, I've wondered this for, for years. What emotions do you experience as you are sitting on the launch pad? Yeah. And how do you manage them? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. So for myself, uh, the military training I had, I think prepared me very well for that, having flown uh, fighter aircraft and then uh, test missions for a long time, um, prepared me for knowing that uh, I would need to react quickly if, if things were to go a certain direction. Uh, and I knew that all the training that NASA prepared for us and had put us through uh, gave me the skills to handle all of that. So when the crew is on the pad for launch, and for the shuttle, this could be anywhere from two and a half to three hours after having ingressed the, the vehicle, uh, then uh, and then having prepared the space shuttle to go from just being a uh, a vehicle kept working by all of the external power and 
and communications requirements to a vehicle that almost in a sense comes alive before launch, right? You go internally on power, you go internally on communications and guidance and navigation. Uh, you, you start to have this for myself, a little bit of a surreal experience. Uh, oh, this time, especially on my first mission, this one's for real. So all of this training, these multiple simulations, these multiple uh, scenarios where you practice all of this, and to include the ones where you should have launched that day, but something uh, occurred, for example, weather that doesn't let you launch, so you have to step back. Well, on the time that you really launched, it, it starts to become this almost surreal situation. You know, you're, there's no one around you in the uh, on the launch pad at this time, and you see the 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 countdown clock inside the inside the cockpit ticking down. And after you've done all you can for launch, you're sitting there thinking, oh, well, this one's really going to happen. There's not much I can do about it, so I might as well be prepared to go. And so it's almost a calming influence. What I mean, does fear ever enter in at any point? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, the, the crews are trained uh, to including all of those that came to NASA and, and didn't come from military flight backgrounds. They NASA does an extremely good job of finding people that it can adapt well. And so never did fear uh, find itself into any of the, the, you know, the flight decks or anything. Uh, there might be apprehension if something happens yeah, yeah. that's unexpected, but you know, as, as is always the case, the crew would break down into what their main functions were, the commander or the pilot or the mission specialist, and they would apply all of their knowledge to uh, solve the problem. For example, on my second mission, uh, we had on ascent a potential uh, fuel tank leak in one of the systems. And I was surprised when the ground control called it up and said, we see a potential leak, how quickly I and mission specialist uh, number two started right into the procedures, just as if we'd been in simulation. So I, I was really pleased that, uh, you know, that the human body, in other words, the, almost the human mind can really switch from absorbing all sorts of things that are going around to when necessary, it can focus down on those things that are important. You know, during, uh, during my leadership program, I focus on the Apollo 13 mission mm -hmm. and we talk about, you know, the, the innovation that was required in terms of moving from, um, from one module to the next because the life support systems were compromised in the one. It was just really interesting to see the, not only obviously the adaptation uh, that was going on uh, in the, in the space vehicle, but all of the testing and innovation that was going on on the ground, right? I mean, just amazing yeah, to think about how to solve that problem when they're 200,000 miles away from home. Well, I think part of that comes from the American spirit is one. Part of that comes from uh, NASA's uh, basic thinking process, which is um, we're part of, nation, uh, part of America's uh, innovation uh, culture. And then part of that is driven by spaceflight of itself. Unlike many different types of, of uh, experiences or um, you know, efforts, spaceflight requires the, the problem to be solved internally. There isn't, for example, a, uh, a warehouse to go get a spare avionics back yeah. package, right? There isn't, uh, for example, a, a hardware store where I can go get those pieces or whatever. And so NASA was really, uh, I think, focused on and helped us train to look at a problem 
broadly and then apply many of the procedures they, that they had already thought out, but they had trained us as well. Well, if these aren't solving the problems, innovate and solve in what yeah. you feel best. And I could see that in many of my crewmates. What, uh, I wanted to, what most excited you about serving as an astronaut? Well, that was, that was an evolving, that, that is an evolving, um, deep answer inside of who I am, I think. So as a young person that began as, well, what an adventure this is, how exciting this is, how, how interesting to be with these really smart and, uh, very capable people. And my gosh, I get to be with these others. You know, I always felt like all my other peers are, wow, they're just really special. So they have some of them three degrees and they can do so many things. But then as I progressed through flight number one and then flight number two, and then as I had the chance to represent uh, the United States and NASA in various other situations, even after I have had left NASA, I think the, the answer lies with uh, the deep satisfaction having known that I did my best for the United States at a critical time. In other words, I met the challenge. All of these people represented by NASA have put their faith in me to do the right thing at the right time. And, and I rose to that challenge, you know? And so yeah. I think that's what I live with most is that uh, I can speak to groups and say, hey, thank you for, um, thank you, meaning your parents, your grandparents, if I'm talking to young people, thank you for the opportunity to have, to have served like this. And uh, I'm just honored that we were able to do what we were supposed to do. Well, I think one of the things that strikes me, though, uh, Paul, is that uh, certainly being an astronaut has given you a platform, and yet you've used that platform consistently to to shine a light on service, to encourage young people. We talked about you uh, writing the adventure book. Yes. Um, and I and I think that's a wonderful thing. I mean, I, you know, selfless service is such a core principle. In fact, it might even be one of the name principles in the U.S. Air Force, as I remember. I don't... <laughs> yeah. uh, integrity, uh, excellence, and uh, service before self. You're exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but those yeah, are yeah, all yeah. wrapped up much like uh, those from, from uh, you know, the United States Military and Academy. It's, yeah. It belongs to um, those men and women in the U.S. military who serve and what, what they do. Um, and I think what's most interesting about that is you know, we serve our nation, but we serve the Constitution. And, you know, the Constitution yeah. is that one document that binds all of us together uh, from yeah. past through present and into the future. Yeah. Well, I, I asked you what most excited you. What most frustrated you? No, that I didn't get to do the Hubble mission. So mm. <laughs> that sounds somewhat <laughs> strange. But, um, you know, I got to build the International Space Station but sitting out there was this really great mission to go to the Hubble telescope and have an opportunity to repair the, repair the Hubble and continue its work looking deep into space. And uh, boy, there were some really capable, really capable guys and gals that were already lined up to fly that mission. And so I knew I wasn't gonna break into that line. So I just kind of said, oh, oh well, that, that won't be, but I'll do the best I can. And, and the other parts that NASA assigns me to. So probably that. Um, you know, also one other thing within my aviation career that's that 
uh, you always feel frustrated at is, uh, you know, with every wonderful thing that comes, there's not always the yang per se, but there's always, well, you know, if you start down this path, you can't do this path. And so uh, I recall the day that I was picked up to go to test pilot school, which of course gave me the opportunity to go to NASA, but that was also just before my squadron entered into uh, Operation Desert Storm. And so I had to leave my squadron right on the eve of that within mm. weeks of their deployment to their location and then participation um, in Operation Desert Storm. And so uh, that's one of those things that uh, I wish that uh, I could have continued all the way through, um, but it, it just wasn't to be. Right, right. But so you missed, you missed uh, on that. You didn't get to do Hubble. No, but you were a part of, but you were a part of building the International Space Station, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. When you think in those missions, it, yes. So yeah. the International Space Station has to, I think, be placed in the same level of engineering feats as they say the Panama Canal or the pyramids from back three thousand years ago. It was just a remarkable um, planning and production and and the construction of a structure in space that we're still using to date. I always tell everybody that none of this was tested on the ground. It wasn't as if we had uh, all of the, the parts and pieces and we sat around the table and we could say, okay, everything's here, all the bolts fit, the, the holes are lined up for everything. It basically was, we build it to tolerances and then we're gonna launch it into space and then we're gonna see if it all fits. And so I was really concerned not for specifically for myself, but I, I was I was concerned that I would get up there and then the pieces and parts that we had brought up that they may not match exactly, but they all did to a T. And, and I was just really struck at how well the space station was built. And that's a testament to the thousands of hours put in yeah. by by, you know, the NASA government personnel and all of their contractors and all of the the small businesses that supported our nation's space program in the nineties and into the early two thousands. Yeah. You know, when we talk about the, uh, the ISS, another thing I've wondered about. So when you're in the cupola and uh, I've heard you describe it in the past as kind of like a bay window, mm -hmm. giving you this expansive view of the earth. What does that, how does that move you in terms of a sense of awe or spirituality or I mean, how, what does that, how does that make you feel? So you strike it right at the heart there, Kumar, and thank you for asking me this question. At the heart of what was the most moving part of my mission up there. Sure, we built the space station and, and sure we, we did over my two missions, six spacewalks that were extremely uh, successful. And sure, we did all of the other small experiments that they requested us to do, all of that pales um, in comparison to that visual view one has when they look out the window, windows or window or cupola of the space station for the first time and one sees this blackness of space, total black, a few stars that are there that they're no closer, but they just don't twinkle. The moon is there, perhaps, if it's in a position where you can see it. And it's a little clear, but it's really not too much closer because the shuttle and the space station aren't that high. And the sun is bright, 
when it comes up over the horizon because the, the light's not diffused by the Earth's atmosphere. All of, all of that pales in comparison to that beautiful, that beautiful palette of colors, which are the earth when you look down upon it as it's kind of set against this, this velvet black, the, the blues, the oranges, the greens, the different shades of greens, the browns, and, and then the dynamic aspect of the earth. It's not a static, um, it's not a static piece of our universe. It's constantly changing as you look down the, the hundreds of miles long dust storms that I saw in Southwest mm. Asia, the thunderstorms at night over the tropical part of Africa with thunderstorms so big that the, uh, the lightning was um, erupting at probably five per second. So in other words, it's just, it, was, it looked like popcorn down below the, the ocean currents, and then of course the cloud formations. All of this makes for a very dynamic Earth, and uh, I came away with that with one word that I use to describe the Earth's view from up there, and that's majestic. I think that encaptures everything um, about where our Earth is in relationship to um, the universe and why it's so special. And for me personally, I look at the Earth. And, you know, it's so set apart and so special from within our solar system, at least from everything else that you, you know, in my mind, that there is a, a guiding hand somewhere behind all of that. And, and mm -hmm. so it reinforced in me that I'm really just a small part of what's going on in the universe. And we humans are, yeah. are as well. Right. That's a beautiful image. Thank you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing I've wondered about, especially as I kind of look at, you mentioned uh, Gemini, Mercury, Apollo, and you brought up SpaceX. How is the NASA of the 1960s, for example, different from the NASA of today? Well, in many ways, it's not. It, uh, it has um, a core set of functions. In other words, NASA has 10 centers. So you have NASA broadly, the agency, and then there's 10 NASA centers and each of them focus on their own, their own special um, skill and expertise. So for example, Johnson Space Center in Houston is where astronauts train. Um, and you also um, do work for long duration missions and rendezvous. And then Kennedy Space, Flinter, Space Center is where the astronauts launch. And then you have uh, Glenn Research Center in Ohio, which has expertise in thermodynamics and also in other aspects of uh, spaceflight. And there's, there's seven more after that. And so the NASA of then and today, the, the number of centers have changed a little bit, but it's still that same disparate group of organizations working, not just doing space, but also um, aerospace and aviation for our nation, because that's the charter of NASA is not just uh, space, but also aerospace. In terms of spaceflight, I think NASA does a very good job of thinking of the very large missions. Perhaps the difference between now and then is we're much more mature in the robotic space programs as previously, mm -hmm. right? So. Uh, as you just 
probably know Perseverance just landed on Mars and now we just have the first little drone that flew there. Yeah. Uh, and that takes a long time to develop. So in the 50s and 60s, when we just started the nation space program, the emphasis was on the human space flight. The robotic programs were there, but they were very simple. And over the decades, they've grown much more complex. So looking back on the question that you'd ask, I would say NASA today is, uh, is very mature and skilled in developing the robotic space programs. And we're inching along on the human space flight of it, right? The rockets are basically the same concept because we used to have, uh, for example, the Saturn V rockets had the, the air or the astronauts in a capsule on the top. Then we moved into the space shuttle program where the astronauts sat in a winged vehicle that flew back down. And now we're moving back to the space launch system, which has a capsule on the top again. And part of that is because we found out how hard it is to fly a winged vehicle back through space. So that's how I would compare the NASA previous, from previous to the previous, to the NASA of today. The robotic side, the deep space exploration is more mature. Our understanding of the earth and our, our space program on the human rated side has, uh, its progression has been a little bit more haphazard. Start, stop, start. And uh, we're just now starting to lay the groundwork for the uh, rockets and the capabilities that'll take us back to the moon and Mars in the future. You know, as, as, a, as a layperson, though, from the outside, when I yeah. look and I think, man, I mean, in the 1960s, I mean, you know, Kennedy says, you know, but, but some may ask, why the moon? And, you know, and then, but 10 years later, we've, or less than that. Yeah. We've, we've got men on the moon. That's so audacious, so bold. I mean, that, that, that's the phrase, right? What's your moonshot? Sure. Um, and then, as I understand it, Nixon comes in, or maybe there's the, the politics of the situation uh, affect the funding or the commitment to that kind of investment. So I've got to imagine then that NASA does have to innovate or change course or think in different ways about how uh, they provide value. Uh, to the country. I mean, could you comment a little bit about that? Sure, I can. NASA always receives bipartisan support across all administrations, which is which is a good thing. But its budget really is pretty small for the mission that broadly that it's given by Congress. And okay. Congress is, of course, selected by us. So it's really the mission that we, uh, the, the citizens of the U.S., give NASA. And uh, it, NASA has always attempted to be bold. It, it has a history of being bold and being successful, but it's got a very difficult mission, a very difficult assignment to do. And because of that, it occasionally, if you may say the right word, it ruptures on the side uh, in terms of being able to handle all of the complexity of its missions with a budget that may not exactly fit what it needs, if that makes sense. So were NASA's budget, I think, matched to what Congress and others wished it to do would be much broader and uh, they would be able to move faster in achieving some of the goals that they've set. But I think NASA tries to do the best it can and does so within the budget that it has. But you know, over the course of 50 years, you can see where 
Um, NASA's budget has leaned out or grown a bit. Mostly it stays pretty stable. Um, and uh, their successes have come in fits and starts, as we described earlier with the human space program. With, unfortunately, you know, there's been some tragic accidents that have occurred um, over the course of these decades. And one of them is the reason why you and I are speaking now, Kumar, uh, because of the loss of Columbia just after my mission. Mm-hmm. What, so you were in the program during then, right? Yes. I mean, how did that impact, how did that impact you? Well, uh, so it was a life-altering event for us. Uh, I had the last mission before Columbia uh, on STS-113, and uh, my crew and I were down, uh, and we're doing public relations events, going around and thanking all the people in NASA for their support, for their hard work. Uh, When STS-107 launched in uh, January of 2003, and that mission was not a space station building flight, it was a space sciences mission, and on that mission was the, the commander, uh, Rick Husband. He and I actually grew up together in the same hometown, and so we had known each other for the longest time. In college, we had sat in his living room and discussed going to the Air Force so that perhaps we could go to NASA someday. So uh, that mission was of interest to me because my good close friend, Rick, was on there. And then three of my classmates from the group of 16 were on that mission. Um, When we lost Columbia on February 1st, 2003, uh, I knew that NASA would not fly for a while because they would have to step back and understand exactly what had happened. And then how do they establish a set of protocols, procedures, and processes such that um, on any other further mission, they could uh, deal with the loss of, of... the or deal with the situation that had caused Columbia. And um, I also knew that since I had flown twice within a few months, which is a very unusual circumstance, that I was probably back to the selection order. In other words, I would fly next as a commander, but it was going to be a while before we would fly for those two reasons. So when Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off in 2003, um, I was... As you, as you recall, I said that I had been wistful about not being there for Desert Storm. Here again was a situation where I felt like, well, my nation's, you know, and especially the Air Force, they, they're engaged again, and I'm not being part of that. I knew that I wasn't going to do anything special like fly combat or anything of that nature, but I, I really wanted to do something and get engaged. So I spoke to my wife and and she and I decided, well, let's let's go back blue. Let's go back Air Force. It was a hard decision, Kumar, to, to leave NASA at the time. Um, you never know what's going to happen, but it's turned out very well. We're now um, here where we are and have many chances, have had many chances to do some really exciting things, uh, to include being with yourself. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. I like the way you said, though, in the, uh, before we began the interview, you were commenting on being kind of at the top of the pyramid with this massive support infrastructure uh, enabling you. And now you you still serve. You still serve in a different capacity, supporting our special operators and um, through innovative technologies and sensors and so on. So which I'm going to ask you about in a moment. But sure, I, I, I'd like to stay with the theme of innovation. Um, I've heard you in the past describe human space, human exploration, you've, you've kind of compared it to the Lewis and Clark expedition, the core of discovery. 
Uh, and you've you've kind of made the analogy that uh, we are basically a, you know that that commenced from St. Louis, and that in terms of human explanation, we're 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 at about St. Louis. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a, a couple of questions there. I mean, what is important about moving beyond St. Louis? You know, with human exploration, and what do you say to those that emphasize robotics or drones because of a lower, you know, cost or lower risk to life? Love your comments on sure. that. Sure, excellent question. So you are right. I have uh, compared it to Lewis and Clark, and starting out in St. Louis, or sometimes when I talk to young people, well, we're really just on our back porch. Uh, looking out at the the backyard and the, and the woods back there, and we've really got to get back out into those woods and go exploring because we're still just on our back porch. Um, but at, I think that uh, the United States now has a path where we're going to get off that back porch and start going back out into the woods again here very soon. Or we're as Lewis and Clark would be doing, they're moving westward uh, out of out of Missouri. So uh, why is this important? You know, this question has come across with NASA all, you know, and those involved in spaceflight all the time. And there are a thousand different ways to approach this. But part of the reason why I think it's important is spaceflight has interwoven into it every part of human endeavor possible. There is not one piece of science. There's not one piece of art. There's not one piece of the human emotion our human psychology that's not interwoven into spaceflight in some manner. And every time we enter into a space mission, whether it's robotic or whether it's human-rated spaceflight, we learn more about ourselves. And I, I think that in and of itself justifies because that knowledge we learn about ourselves then is used to make our life better on Earth. Whether it's technology-wise, or whether it's going to be in the future, for example, for the, for the astronauts that have to travel deep into space to Mars, we learn about the psychology more so of loneliness or having been mm. isolated. And all of this is, you know, can be playing for human society in the future better for things such as the pandemic and those uh, people that have to be isolated for a while. How do you best care for those kind of people? Um, in terms of the robotic spaceflight and the human-rated spaceflight, they're, they're, two, they're two twins. They're, they both have to be active in part of that. And the reason why I think humans have to be there, much like I always think that when you talk about autonomous vehicles in terms of being involved in other aspects of our society, whether it's the economy or the military or whatever, the parts that's missing is the human judgment that you and I bring to a situation. Now, sure, computers can gather data and they can do machine to machine learning and they can do what is called AI, artificial intelligence, to gather a bigger solution set from which computers can, can build and make selections upon. Uh, but that is not an infinite database that they have yet. And so you and I bring, with still the most important computer and impressive computer that, that has yet to be built, though not by us, but by God, um, you and I bring the ability to see across a wide variety of situations and experiences to connect dots that are too difficult to do. Even though computers can do things with greater precision and greater speed, you and I still see things off 
two things that shouldn't be comparable. And we go, oh, those are connected because back when I was in college, I saw this same thing and I remember that happening. Or, you know, talking to other people in flying or driving and somebody told me about this and I recall that experience. So I think that both are required. I like to say when I was on orbit and I looked down on this majestic earth as I was describing earlier, I could understand why humans lived where they lived when they when they began civilization and why they migrated this direction. You can just look down and get this view and understand, well, of course, in this area, there are um, ancient volcanoes in the Sahara Desert, right? And so there's just no water at this point. So you can see why you know, the, the civilizations would have gone here and then moved this direction. And it's sometimes it's those pieces of information that the human brings where you, you see something and you use a little bit of your, your oceanography, your little bit of history, your little bit of engineering, your little bit of um, maybe working on the lawnmower at home, something comes together and you go, oh, that's clearly that's what that is. That's so unusual. I need to take that photo because that's something that's not normally seen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my call for it as to why yeah. we need to have humans still in there. That little spark of imagination, that judgment that we bring is, I think, very critical. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you think of, um, you know, when we, we talk about humans going beyond low Earth orbit, mm-hmm. uh, potentially going back to the moon. Um, how does, and this wouldn't just be NASA, it could be also the, the work you're currently doing with your wife. I mean, how, what are the essentials for staying at the, at the bleeding edge of innovation? What needs to be in place? Well, I think first of all, uh, there has to be the belief that you aren't the leading edge of innovation, right? So for as much as uh-huh. you think you're on the leading edge of innovation, yeah. I can tell you, from having served on the engineering advisory committee at the University of Texas, which is uh, probably comparable uh, in terms of what other universities are doing too, seeing those young people and the work they're doing in graduate work just tells me that already there's tentacles of knowledge being formed that are far beyond what you think you're doing. And so I think it begins with saying, Ah, you're not really at the leading edge of innovation. There's humility. Humility. <laughs> humility is at the key of it. And yeah. you need to continue to start looking. Once you get comfortable, as you've heard in many different things, once you get comfortable at what you're doing and thinking that you've got it solved yeah. and and uh, it's not going to get any better, well, then you're, you're probably peaked and you're on your way down. So, yeah, innovation yeah. requires constant questioning and asking what's out there that's better. And not being complacent in what you're doing, you know, believing that there's better ways of doing something. Yeah. What about, um, the, one more question on NASA, um, the most significant leadership challenge you experienced there? It's a big question. Yeah. So you might go ahead. It is. So, and it's a really good one. And I think I have a really good answer. So my most significant leadership question was how can I be the best follower? So, and it was set up by my two missions uh, that came so close to one another. So as you become a leader, you, you realize that you have to be a good follower first. You have to support the team 
and elevate it and do your part so that those that do lead can succeed and focus on what's important. So my two missions had two different commanders and two different leadership styles. And I had spent one year training with one and we had a very successful mission with a certain type of leadership style and a certain style of training based upon the skills of my crew. Fast forward to three months later, after I had been told, oh, you're going to fly again in about six weeks, which is very unusual. I had to learn another mission with a different crew on the same space shuttle, the Endeavor. And this crew makeup was totally different with a different type of commander and a different leadership style. And I had to readapt both my, how do I support the commander? So I had to change my my leadership style internally so that I did the right thing for them. And then I had to adapt my leadership style uh, as the intravehicular astronaut, the one who stays on the inside and helps the two astronauts do their spacewalks. So I'm in charge of the checklist, tracking everything, almost in a sense, the ballet conductor, you know, the conductor of or the orchestra or the coach on the sidelines. I had to totally change that because the crew and my second mission um, were very experienced and had flown before, at least one of them had, and my crew on my first mission, they were rookies, both of them. So my training style had to adapt quickly. And I saw that as soon as I started using the same leadership techniques and on the first mission to the second one, and the crew pulled me aside and said, hey, we can do this, we need you to do that. So I, I adapted very quickly. So I think that that was a great study in leadership between those two missions. You know, as you describe that, I'm hearing like a classical definition of emotional intelligence, like adapting <laughs> to differing personalities and situations and responsibilities and team dynamics. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I love the way you framed it too, being a being a better follower. Yeah, well, that's great. I was the newbie on the second crew, right? I was the guy that was being yeah. brought into this crew that was very mature, about ready to fly, and all of a sudden I'm thrust in there. And so, yeah, you have to better have emotional intelligence, or they're gonna. They'll show you really quickly, right? You'll, they'll show you your place. Yeah, yeah. But that was a great mission. Yeah, I, yeah. Both of them were fun. But I really liked mission number two because um, we uh, we were we had a very tough series of spacewalks to do, and it was a hard mission with all the stuff that we were doing. And we exited out of that mission with extremely few mistakes. So I was very proud of that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So let's turn to now. Sure. What is your passion now? No, oh, I've got several passions. So number one is I'm a follower again. I'm supporting my wife. So all those years, you know, when I was on the top of the pyramid, she was doing her bit down here. Now that that pyramid is inverted and she has a company that uh, that does support for uh, the Army Special Ops. She builds sensors and uh, satellite antennas and also um, big data analytical software uh, to help uh, the Army Special Ops um, fly unmanned vehicles and do so autonomously. And so my job is to fit in wherever I can and help her. So that that's one, right? And that's, that's kind of neat. Um, here's one on the side. So I've flown 30 different kinds of aircraft over 5,000 hours. Um, and since I left NASA, it's, you know, five new aircraft, things of this nature. Okay, this one's going to be kind of interesting. So, and it's one of those passions since I was a young kid. So I told you growing up in West Texas, I could either be a cowboy or an astronaut, right? So I chose astronaut <laughs> right. first. 
And what I'm doing now, I'm trying to go back and learn to be the cowboy right now. So I'm, I'm learning to work a horse. And to be honest, that's almost as hard as anything I've ever done, right? I don't have, I don't have the emotional intelligence of the horse yet, but I'm trying my best. <laughs> Yeah. What about if you would you also t uh, share a little bit more about um, I mean, even the genesis of this idea of an adventure book and trying to motivate and inspire young people? Yes, that that goes back to when I was little uh, and I had a I didn't have any grandparents. They had all passed by the time I was two years old. But I had a half aunt that was much older than my mom. So she, in a sense, was my grandmother in a way. And she would come visit us and she always brought out a book. So here's this story on Lewis and Clark, right? Or here's the story on Daniel Boone, or here's the story on the first um, person to explore uh, Antarctica or things of this nature, or books about animals and things of this nature. And so from her, I, I got this passion for exploring and, uh, and the qualities that needed to persevere and, and, um, you know, continue on when things got hard. Um, and then as I got older, um, I want to make sure I answer your original question. You were wondering about how I got to the book. I realized then that there were people that stepped in into my life at the right time. And besides my uh, the aunt that I just spoke about and kind of guided me in the right direction. Right. And so I've often thought about how important those adventure books were to me and how I gained a lot of my perspective about who I am and what I wanted to be from them. And so I have decided that that's something that I want to do is as I've inverted this pyramid, I want to give back. Right. And I and I want to do so for uh, for the youth and emphasize those qualities that I think are necessary in all facets of life. Right. You've got to conduct yourself with integrity. You have to be true to yourself yeah. first. And you have to have courage to stand up. Each day is a test of courage. Can you do the right thing? Can you yeah. try and put out and do the best in whatever you're doing? Um, that all takes courage. Um, yeah. As I've grown older, that's almost one of my most favorite words now, courage. You know, Because mm -hmm. it's, it's something that you have to carry with you and you're tested each day. Uh, generally yeah. not by external forces, but by internal, you know, your internal will and your internal emotion and so forth. So I, I completely agree. Completely right. agree. I mean, you know, it, it's about intestinal fortitude yeah. and taking the harder right over the easier wrong and persevering. All of those are elements of, of courage, of fortitude. Yeah. You're right. Not necessarily uh, assaulting a, a, a bunker no. uh, or, or, or flying a space shuttle. Well, you, <laughs> you are so correct. And I've had a chance to meet many Medal of Honor winners. And of course, none of them said, oh, yes, I was I knew this was going to come. And, and so I knew I'd had the courage to do that. You know, in all of the instances, these um, uh, these men of many different backgrounds and many different um, uh, nationalities or, you know, the, the Americans, but I mean, different races and so forth. Each of them basically said, you know, I, I just dug deep to do what I knew needed to be done to care for my comrades and. I can't think of anything more satisfying in life someday B besides your own relationship uh, with God and then your family than to know that you can have put yourself in a position to have done all you can for your fellow man, whatever that could be. It could be physical danger, 
but it could be uh, working in medicine and doing all you can to help. It could be in sports to train young sports athletes. It could be in business to develop a business that really serves the good of all. So there's a lot of ways to go about it. See, how did we get from the question <laughs> to that there, Kumar? That was a good- We're, 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 we're philosophizing. We are, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, where, where can our listeners learn more about you and your current pursuits? Oh, wow. Where would you point them to? Oh, well, thank you, Kumar. I really appreciate that. Um, gosh, I don't know what to tell you per se. I, I have a website called Virtus Adventures. Virtus is the Latin word for, for character, right? Virtue comes from that. So www.virtusadventures.com. And in that, um, I have uh, written some basic thoughts about events that have happened in my life. The, the time I almost uh, put myself in a very bad situation with the young airman in the back. And if things hadn't worked out, I wouldn't have been here today. And that was a, a confession moment to myself and others that I wasn't paying attention to stories uh, about things that have happened to me um, when I hiked the, the jungles of uh, New Guinea, for example, and the things that I saw there. So uh, to me, it's it's a way for me to give back to the youth, and and I'm hoping that these collections of stories will become the book that I try and you know that I'm working on to bring back and give to the youth. You know, we're going to have to have you back to hear about the jungles of New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, those Australians, those are great people to be with. I'll tell you, yeah. Yeah, I've got good stories right. for that. We all do, Kumar. You know, and that's right. that's the great thing. I'm sure all of your people that are listening, if they'll stop and think, they can just take a walk around their block. And for young kids and boys, it can be an adventure, whatever you make of it. Well, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to share your lessons learned over a, a highly successful career of risk and sacrifice. Oh. Really appreciate it. Well, Kumar, it's uh, it's an honor to be with you and to all of the folks that uh, are part of your of your um, your story yourself and to the, your listeners. I wish them all the best and um, you know, may they find the inner courage they need to to go out and do what they want to do tomorrow and in the future. Amen. Right. <laughs>